0: Last week, I came across a news report, and the title of the report was Africa's Unholy War. It was about the Central African Republic, and the article said that in that region, Muslims and Christians are killing each other. In that article, the word Christian was being used to refer to people from certain areas of the country. The article assumed that people can be born Christians. There was no discussion about whether true Christianity might mean something a bit different. Those of you who are here on Thursday night will remember that Gerald Tanner told us that 80% of people in Uganda call themselves Christians. Now, here in England, the figures are very, very different, but I'm sure there are still plenty of people in England who think of Christianity the way that article did, or the way a lot of Ugandans do. They have some vague sense that Christianity is their religion. They just haven't paid the slightest bit of attention to it their whole lives. a man in his 20s said to me not so long ago, I believe it, I've just never really looked into it. Now, as far as I know, he had never once been to church. I don't think his Bible knowledge would have stretched to knowing that there was an Old Testament as well as a New Testament. But somehow in his mind, Christianity was his religion. He just hadn't looked into it yet. At some level, that man believes he's with Jesus, or that he's on Jesus' side, just like those African fighters in the article do, I'm sure. But the question is, would Jesus agree? Would Jesus own those men as his family? Or does belonging to Jesus involve more than that? Is it all those who go to church? Or maybe those who pay attention in church? Or join in the singing in church? Well, our passage this evening focuses in on this question. Who are Jesus' people? We're going to look together at Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. And if you're using a church Bible, that's page 1004 and in the large print, 1559. Mark 3, and I'm going to read from verse 7 to the end of chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting round him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle round him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. The passage we looked at last week ended by telling us the Pharisees and Herodians were plotting to kill Jesus. So he has enemies. But we're immediately reminded in this passage that Jesus is incredibly popular. And we've seen this right from chapter 1. In chapter 1, when Jesus tried to take some time to pray by himself, his disciples came to tell him, Everyone is looking for you. And in chapter 2, some men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus but we're told they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. So they end up lowering their friend through the roof. And here in our passage, in verse 7, when Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the lake, we're told a large crowd follow him. Jesus has real trouble getting away from people. And here they come from all over the place. Verse 8 says, when they heard all that he was doing... Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Mark is showing us here what a wide area people are coming from. Jesus' reputation already has spread far. And this large crowd is literally crowding Jesus. Mark says the sick are pushing forward, literally falling upon him to touch him. And Jesus heals them, but it's obvious he doesn't see these people as his people. For one thing, he tells his disciples to have a boat ready so he can escape. The sense we get is Jesus is helping these people, but his focus is elsewhere. He's going to exit when he gets the opportunity. And notice something else. When these impure spirits identify him, in verse 11, you are the son of God, Jesus gives them strict orders not to spread it around. Why? I'm sure part of the reason is that Jesus can do without publicity from demons. But there's more to it than that. Why does Jesus want that information kept from the crowds? Well, he knows how the crowds would react. They're here crowding Jesus, not so they can hear his message, not so they can actually pay attention to him. They're here so they can benefit from his power. There's no indication they're here to repent and believe the good news. In fact, it seems the demons have more respect for Jesus than these crowds do. Mark seems to be pointing out a deliberate contrast here. The demons, in verse 11, fall down before Jesus. Whereas the crowd, in verse 10, literally fall upon Jesus. Jesus doesn't want these people hearing that he's the son of God. It wouldn't make them want to repent and believe. It would make them more convinced of his power and more greedy to get their hands on some of his power. So Jesus tells the demons to stay quiet. The lesson is there are many things that can draw a crowd. Even a crowd in Jesus' name. But that in itself isn't something to get excited about. There are people around today who can draw massive crowds in Jesus' name. But often the crowd has come because they've been promised wealth in Jesus' name. Or physical healing in Jesus' name. Promises like that will draw a crowd but not necessarily a crowd that want to know Jesus or to turn from their sin and follow Jesus. On the other hand, the call to repent and believe will not often draw big crowds. But those who do respond to that call, they're the ones who are actually interested in Jesus. Look at the contrast here in our passage. We've just seen this scene of the crowds almost crushing Jesus. And then look what Mark tells us in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach And to have authority to drive out demons. There's a very deliberate contrast here between the crowd and the disciples. The picture Mark gives us of discipleship is not a crowd greedy for power from Jesus. No, the picture that Mark gives us is that disciples are hand-picked by Jesus. It's a striking way that Mark puts it. He called to him those he wanted. Well, doesn't he want everyone? Yes, the call to repent and believe is for all. But we can't get away from this sense that Jesus actually is hand-picking people. He's calling them out of the crowd. He did it in chapter 1 with Simon and Andrew, James and John. They were fishermen at work. And Mark tells us there were other people around when Jesus came. But he called out those four. Then in chapter 2, he called Levi from his tax collector's booth. And here, Jesus calls out 12, including the five men that we've just mentioned. It seems that Levi also went by the name Matthew. And maybe we look at this and say, well, surely Jesus is picking from men he already knows quite well. He's identified those who are really interested in his message. That's why he chooses the ones he does. Maybe there could be an element of that, but Mark does not present it to us that way. As Mark presents it, We're given no reason why Jesus picks who he does. Mark does not say these are the most interested of the bunch, or the most teachable, or these are the ones who showed the most promise. Actually, they're not a very promising bunch. There are loud, hot headed ones, like Peter and the sons of thunder. There's at least one former anti Roman terrorist. Simon the Zealot, alongside Matthew, who collected taxes for the Romans, and of course Judas, who would betray Jesus. There are no obvious human reasons why these guys would end up as disciples. Sometimes football managers are interviewed and they say, Well, the team picked itself today. Meaning, the names on the team sheet are clearly the best available names. But that is not the case here. Mark is telling us that at the most basic level, discipleship is not the choice of the disciple. It's Jesus' choice. John reports in his gospel that Jesus said to these men, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Making disciples is God's work. And then look what discipleship involves in verse 14. He appointed these 12 that they might be with him. So before anything they might do for Jesus, disciples are to be taught by Jesus. Disciples don't decide for themselves what it means to be a disciple. Jesus is going to teach them. And Sinclair Ferguson says, Being with Jesus became the secret of their lives. Later in the book of Acts, when the people in Jerusalem see and hear these men, when they look for some explanation of their courage and their insight, we're told they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That is the secret of the disciples' life. Now, it's true, these original twelve had a unique role to play. There were twelve tribes of Israel, the Old Testament people of God. And as Jesus chooses a core group of twelve disciples, he's laying the foundation for a new people of God. And these twelve would have a unique authority. They would be eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's their testimony about Jesus that's recorded for us in the New Testament. It's through their witness that you and I came to believe. So it's true that we today are not in the same position as these twelve. But we are called to the same pattern of discipleship. We are called to be with Jesus. Listening to his written word. And we are sent out to be his witnesses. In the power of his Holy Spirit. Mark wants us to see here. That Jesus' people are not those who treat Jesus like Santa in his grotto, crowding around him for what they can get out of him. Jesus' people are those who come to be with him, to listen carefully to him, so that they can follow and obey him. So it's worth each of us asking ourselves, which category am I in? Am I following Jesus for the fireworks? Am I following in the hope of spectacular answers to prayer and material blessings? Or am I following him because I've heard his call and I want to be with him and serve him? Well, in the second section of our passage, we get another angle on this question. Who are Jesus' people? The contrast here is between mother, brothers, and religious people, and true family. Look at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. This section starts and ends with Jesus' mother and brothers. For the moment, we'll just notice that as they observe him, and as they hear what he's up to, they seem to think they need to take Jesus in hand. But before we see how that ends up, the teachers of the law weigh it in. The irony here is that the most religious people are the most opposed to Jesus. They accuse him here of being a messenger, not of God, but of Satan. Beelzebul is another name for Satan. And these religious people are saying Jesus is actually possessed by Beelzebub. Obviously, they cannot deny Jesus has power. But they're saying the source of his power is evil rather than good. And Jesus' answer to them is simple. Satan would never attack his own kingdom. In fact, Jesus says what's happening is that another kingdom is breaking in. Satan's kingdom is being destroyed by a stronger kingdom, the kingdom of God. In verse 27, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Jesus sees his ministry as binding Satan and plundering Satan's house. I realize that some Christians think of binding Satan as something that we are to do on a regular basis, through exorcisms and especially through our prayers. Maybe you've come across that. But when Jesus uses the phrase, he is thinking of a once-for-all binding of Satan. Jesus did that through his life, death, and resurrection. We saw back in chapter 1, Jesus came to earth to defeat Satan. And at this point in his ministry, the battle is already underway. Satan will be defeated on the cross. That's where his power will be broken. Now, that doesn't mean Satan is quiet and inactive today. But he is defeated He fights on, yes, he does. But Jesus has won the victory. So binding Satan is not something you and I are called to do today. He is bound. Jesus has done that. You and I are to carry on the work of plundering Satan's house. We do that by sharing the good news about Jesus. That's what brings men and women from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, sharing the good news. Remember, as Jesus explains his work of binding Satan, he's replying to people who say that he's serving Satan. Now, really, that is a silly thing to say. Why would Satan attack himself? But underneath that silly accusation, here's what these teachers of the law are doing. They are observing the power of the Holy Spirit at work in Jesus' ministry. They're being confronted with the reality of God's King bringing in God's kingdom. And they're rejecting it. They are stubbornly resisting the truth that's right in front of them. They're saying the greatest work ever done in history is actually the greatest folly, to be resisted at all costs. That's what they're doing. And that's what Jesus is speaking about when he says in verse 28, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. What is the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit? It is a settled, deliberate rejection of God's work in Jesus. It's regarding Jesus' call to obedience and discipleship as the ultimate foolishness. It's taking God's truth and declaring it to be lies. Now, I don't know anyone today who claims Jesus was serving Satan. That particular accusation is just not current today. It's not around. But the mindset behind that accusation is everywhere today. Men and women who speak of Jesus' work as if it's the worst delusion, the worst con, the most foolish thing to base your life on. And Jesus is saying, very simply, that settled antagonism against the good news is a sin with eternal consequences. And again, notice here, it's a sin carried out by some of the most religious people. That was the case with these teachers of the law, and it's the case today when religious leaders pervert the truth when they tell men and women that everybody ends up in heaven. Or that it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe it sincerely. Or that sin is not really sinful. That God's happy as long as we are happy. All of that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it can be carried out by religious people. It denies the importance of Jesus' death. Why did Jesus die, actually, if sin doesn't matter? It denies the reality of Satan and his kingdom. The very kingdom Jesus came to defeat and plunder. Some of you were here on Thursday night when Gerald Tanner reminded us of the importance of the truth. He read Paul's description of Hymenaeus and Philetus, who, Paul says, have departed from the truth and whose teaching spreads like gangrene. Those who deny the truth about Jesus and his work, and that includes the reasons Jesus had to do his work, the reality of sin and Satan and hell, those who deny that truth are not our brothers and sisters. They are not Jesus' people. No matter how religious they might be. Jesus is not afraid to draw lines in the sand. He's not afraid to say some people are in and some people are out of his kingdom. And that includes even his own family. We've already seen in verse 21 that his family have come looking for Jesus because they think he's out of his mind. He's flipped. Maybe they think he's got much too elevated ideas about himself. Or maybe they think he's going to get himself in trouble. But whatever their precise reasons are, they have come to take charge of Jesus. And after telling us how Jesus dealt with his religious opponents, the focus then shifts back to his family. In verse 31, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and he told, they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle round him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. It seems that Joseph may already be dead at this point in time. But Mary and her other sons arrive... And if you picture the scene here, it's quite a symbolic scene. Mary and her boys are outside the house. Jesus is inside, surrounded with disciples who have no blood relation to him. But it's those disciples Jesus points to when he says, here are my mother and my brothers. In other words, Jesus is saying, It's not blood that counts. Not really. It's doing God's will that counts. That's what distinguishes my true family from everybody else. Now, by itself, doing God's will is not a very clear statement. Isn't that what every religious person is trying to do in some way? So can we be any more specific about what Jesus means? I think we can. Jesus' message was set out in chapter 1. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. According to Jesus, that's what it means to do God's will. That's what this circle around him in the house are doing. And it's what his family and the teachers of the law outside the house are not doing. Jesus is not against human family ties. But he's teaching that there's a higher kind of family tie. There's a higher loyalty than blood loyalty. It's loyalty to our Father in heaven. Our loyalty to him, expressed through commitment to his son, Jesus, that determines our greatest family ties. Jesus' true family is our true family. And in Jesus' case, over the course of time, at least some of his human family did come to join his true family but they had no special privileges. They joined his family the same way as everybody else. They put their faith in Jesus, who he is and what he did. And they became disciples of Jesus. They listened to him and they obeyed him. So there's more to being a Christian than being brought up around Christians or saying we're a Christian or crowding around Jesus looking for blessings. His true family hear his call to repent and believe the good news. His true family make time to be with him, to listen to him, to be taught by him. And his true family make it their business To obey him. And think of the privilege to be part of the family of God. To have God's Son own us as his brothers and sisters. To read in the book of Hebrews that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Can there be any greater privilege than that? We're going to respond to God's goodness to us as we sing, Name of All Majesty, and then, Soli Deo Gloria.